Our Old Testament lesson this morning comes from Ezekiel chapter 47, which can be found on page 1369 in your pew Bibles. And uh, we'll be reading verses 1 through 6, unless I get carried away, which I might. This is a, it's hard to start, stop in verse 6. Uh, Ezekiel chapter 47, and here uh, Ezekiel living, you know, hundreds of years before Jesus, is having this vision of what things will be like when, uh, when the kingdom of God is fully restored. And uh, here they are in exile. The people are not even in the land that God had promised to them, and now what? And so God is giving Ezekiel this vision of uh, what will be the case someday. And we pick that up in the middle of this vision Before we read, let us pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you again for this day that you have made, and God, we thank you for your word that you have given to us. Lord, we pray that this morning as we hear your word read and proclaimed, that you would give us ears to hear. God, that you would give us minds to understand. And God, that you would give us hearts that you have prepared already in advance, that are ready to receive your word into our lives, that we would be ready to be transformed into the people that you have made us to be in relationship with you through Jesus. We pray this in his name. Amen. Ezekiel chapter 47 says, The man brought me back to the entrance to the temple, and I saw water coming out from under the threshold of the temple toward the east, for the temple faced east. The water was coming down from under the south side of the temple, south of the altar. He then brought me out through the north gate and led me around the outside to the outer gate facing east. And the water was trickling from the south side. As the man went eastward with a measuring line in his hand, he measured off a thousand cubits and then led me through water that was ankle deep. He measured off another thousand cubits and led me through water that was knee deep. He measured off another thousand and led me through water that was up to the waist. He measured off another thousand, but now it was a river that I could not cross because the water had risen and was deep enough to swim in, a river that no one could cross. He asked me, son of man, do you see this? Then he led me back to the bank of the river. All right, we're going just three more verses, just three more. When I arrived there, I saw a great number of trees on each side of the river. He said to me, this water flows toward the eastern region and goes down into the Arabah, where it enters the Dead Sea. When it empties into the sea, the salty water there becomes fresh. Swarms of living creatures will live wherever the river flows. There will be large numbers of fish because this water flows there and makes the salt water fresh. So where the river flows, everything will live. All right. Turning to our New Testament lesson, this is... Ephesians chapter 6, verses 1 through 9. And we have been reading through Ephesians uh, week by week, looking at this uh, last half of Ephesians and and talking about how the way that this book is set up, the first three chapters, is all about uh, who we are in Christ what he has done for us. And therefore, the second half, verse, chapters 4 through 6, is, okay, then how now do we live as, uh, as his people? And so we get a bunch of kind of practical 
day-to-day instructions, but you don't ever start here. You start in the beginning, understanding who we are in him and how this flows out of that. Uh, So here we go. Chapter 6, verses 1 through 9. Those children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. Honor your father and mother, which is the first commandment with a promise, so that it will so that it may go well with you, and that you may enjoy long life on the earth. Fathers, do not exasperate your children. Instead, bring them up in the training and instruction of the Lord. Slaves, obey your earthly masters with respect and fear and with sincerity of heart, just as you would obey Christ. Obey them not only to win their favor when their eye is on you, but as slaves of Christ, doing the will of God from your heart. Serve wholeheartedly as if you were serving the Lord, not people, because you know that the Lord will reward each one for whatever good they do, whether they are slave or free. And masters, treat your slaves in the same way. Do not threaten them, since you know that he who is both their master and yours is in heaven, and there is no favoritism with him. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. As I say, we've been reading through Ephesians, but uh, what we've been preaching through is actually the book of John, and, uh, and we are in John chapter 7 currently, and before I get into that, uh, I said earlier we're going to talk a bit about how context kind of matters, and how if you don't understand uh, the Bible, you get you know, songs that sound weird, or you get things that... Uh, that don't make any sense. The more you understand how it all fits together, the more it all starts to make sense. And today's passage is one that is a lot like this. So before we get into that, I'll just give you some silly examples of this. Uh, so if you were alive in the 80s, and in that time period, if someone had just extended a single finger and said, phone home, would you know what they were talking about? Yes, everybody who was alive in the 80s is like, without question, we know you're talking about E.T. And everybody younger than that is like, that makes no sense to me. <laughs> that, is, that is a weird thing. Why would anyone do that? Um, if anybody uh, said in an Austrian accent, I'll be back, you know what that's talking about? The Terminator. You know these, you know these things. Here's another one. Uh, I was at a cross-country meet a year or two ago, and a deer darted out just like right by where all the runners were. And a girl I was standing next to said, uh, expect a Patronus. Anybody know that one? <laughs> Maybe fewer. <laughs> yeah, I had no idea what she was talking about. I was like, what are you saying? It's a Harry Potter reference. And everybody who gets, who's read that knows they get, the, they get the reference. They know what that's about. But that's the whole idea. It takes, you know, two, three words, and you can... Already, it kind of brings up this whole world, this whole other body of knowledge that you're familiar with. And you can sort of, you know, just by saying phone home, it just takes everybody right back to the E.T. movie. And you're like, oh, I get what you're talking about. I see the connection you're making. Or, and you can do this uh, in sports. You can do this politics. You, there are all these references where just a few words can just sort of preload the whole thing in there for you. Does that make sense? And if you don't know all that, those same two words do nothing for you, right? This is where uh, I tried to get a few examples that maybe you'd be on both sides of that, where maybe you'd know some of them and not know some of them. You knew all of them, so thanks a lot. Anyway, because <laughs> uh, this morning, 
we're looking at something that Jesus said and what he says, we go, oh yeah, I get that. But only maybe a little bit because where he was when he said it and when it was that he said it makes a huge difference. And we don't understand any of that unless we understand uh, the time and the place that he was living in and what was going on there uh, culturally and that background context that everybody there would have known. And so when we're reading about it, if we know all those things going in, it means so much more. So we're not going to be able to unpack all of that, but I am going to try to give you some of that this morning so we have an idea of a better understanding of what it is that he's saying and the claims that he's making. One of the things that we have looked at in the book of John is that uh, you know sometimes people will say that Jesus never says, I am God. You know, he never makes that claim to say, I am God. And we're like, it's true. If you do a kind of a search for, you know, that, that exact quote, you'll never find Jesus saying that exactly. Well, how about that? On the other hand, what we have seen as we've gone through this whole book is almost every single thing Jesus says and does is another way of saying that he is God. And that is um, the actions that he does are things that only God can do. The things that he says are things only God would say. And so uh, we see that over and over again, but it's kind of like only if you have the eyes to see it, but it's there. And we've also been talking about uh, how John is one of the authors in, uh, in the New Testament who actually tells us why he's writing this book. And he says, you know, I didn't include everything that Jesus did, but I told you some of the things he did, and here's why. This is John chapter 20, starting in verse 30. He says, Jesus performed many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not recorded in this book. But these are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing, you may have life in his name. That's the whole goal of all of this, that you would have life in his name. And we want to just keep bringing that up and keep that before us as we read all of this, that the reason, uh, the reason for all of it is that we would have life in his name and believing that he is the Messiah. So where we are this morning is looking at something that happened in the temple during the Feast of Tabernacles. So does everybody here know everything about the temple and the Feast of Tabernacles? If so, we're good to go. No. Okay. Well, all right. That's helpful. Probably not. That's not the world we live in. If somebody said, all right, tomorrow we're going to be celebrating the Feast of Tabernacles, go to Walmart and get your supplies. You'd be like, I don't even know what to start shopping for. (laughs) What do you do for the Feast of Tabernacles? How do we, I don't know what to do there. If somebody said, uh, (laughs) somebody said they wanted you to pour something out on the south side of the altar in the the temple, you'd be like, where's the altar? (laughs) Where, Where do I go? How do I? That's just not the world we live in. And yet, that is, when Jesus gets up and says something during this feast at that place, everybody there, that's, that's the world they're living in. That all means something to them. So here's, I'm just going to read through what it says, then we'll go back and talk about what this means. This is uh, John chapter 7, starting in verse 32. Uh, we had seen earlier in this chapter how Jesus is living up in Galilee, And then he comes down to uh, Jerusalem for this festival. But how initially he didn't go down with everybody else. 
because he said his time had not yet come. And that is, of course, his time to be killed. Uh, that will come. It will come in not very long from this point. But I'm not coming down with everybody now. So he goes down halfway through the festival, goes down to Jerusalem. And we said it wasn't about uh, being afraid. It was about not being the right time because he does make himself publicly known. And here's kind of where that really uh, comes in. So in verse 14, halfway through the festival, he goes in and starts teaching. And now we're going to skip forward to uh, the end of the festival. Here we go. Verse 32. The Pharisees heard the crowd whispering such things about him. Then the chief priests and the Pharisees sent temple guards to arrest him. Jesus said, I am with you for only a short time, and then I am going to the one who sent me. You will look for, for me, but you will not find me. And where I am, you cannot come. The Jews said to one another, where does this man intend to go that we cannot find him? Where will he go where our people live scattered among the Greeks and teach the Greeks? What did he mean when he said, you will look for me, but you will not find me? And where I am, you cannot come. On the last and greatest day of the festival, Jesus stood and said in a loud voice, Let anyone who is thirsty come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as scripture has said, rivers of living water will flow from within them. By this, he meant the spirit, whom those who believed in him were later to receive. Up to that time, the spirit had not yet been given since Jesus had not yet been glorified. On hearing his words, some of the people said, surely this man is the prophet. Others said, he is the Messiah. Still others said, how can the Messiah come from Galilee? Does not scripture say that the Messiah will come from David's descendants and from Bethlehem, the town where David lived? Thus, the people were divided because of Jesus. Some wanted to seize him, but no one laid a hand on him. Finally, the temple guards went back to the chief priests and the Pharisees who asked them, why didn't you bring him in? No one ever spoke the way this man does, the guards replied. You mean he's deceived you also, the Pharisees retorted. Have any of the rulers of the Pharisees or of the Pharisees believed in him? No, but this mob that knows nothing of the law, there is a curse on them. Nicodemus, who had gone to Jesus earlier and who was one of their own number, asked, does our law condemn a man without first hearing him to find out what he's been doing? They replied, are you from Galilee too? Look into it and you will find that a prophet does not come out of Galilee. And they all went home, but Jesus went to the Mount of Olives. All right, we're actually going to start at the end of this one with this uh, idea that the, the Pharisees are trying to get Jesus arrested. They sent the temple guards to arrest him. The temple guards come back without having arrested him. <laughs> they're like, why did you not arrest him? And they're like, nobody talks like he does. This is the same kind of thing that you see at the end of the Sermon on the Mount where Matthew tells us at the end of Matthew chapter 7, the crowds were amazed because Jesus taught with authority and not like one of their teachers of the law. And that's exactly what you see is when Jesus is talking, he doesn't say what all the other rabbis said, which is, you know, this is what uh, the law says. So there you go. Instead, or this is what the Lord says, he says, I tell you. And the whole way through this, take, it, take a look. Matthew 5 through 7, look at how many times Jesus says, you've heard that it was said this, but I tell you this. It's like nobody teaches like that. But Jesus did. He taught as one who had authority. So the uh, temple guards come back and they're like, why didn't you arrest him? Nobody talks like this. I don't know who you think he is, but, and we're not even sure who he is, but that 
there's something different going on with this guy. They don't arrest him. Well, of course, what then happens is the Pharisees turn on the guards and they're like, y'all are idiots. <laughs> no, like, come on. Has he fooled you? He hasn't fooled us. We know what's going on. And they even ask the question, has anybody in our group <laughs> believed in him? No, nobody in our group has believed in him. And then <laughs> John's like, meanwhile, Nicodemus says, like, wait a second. I remember Nicodemus. In fact, Nicodemus, um, verse 50, it says, Nicodemus, who had gone to Jesus earlier and who was one of their own number, asked. <laughs> in other words, has anybody in our group believed in him? Yeah, apparently so. There, there is this guy. And what does he say? He says, you can't condemn somebody. The law says you can't condemn somebody without first hearing what the charges are against them, right? Without hearing first what they've been doing. In other words, you all are judging the situation, but you're judging it not based on any actual information or evidence, just kind of on what you want to be the case. Which is what we talked about last week of Jesus saying, do not judge by mere appearances. But here's the craziest thing, is what they then do is, of course, turn on Nicodemus. Oh, you must be from Galilee too. You're one of them kind of thing. No. But everything they state in all this, uh, you'll find that a prophet does not come from Galilee. Or earlier when you see, uh, does not the scripture say that the Messiah will come from David's descendants from Bethlehem, the town David lived in? You know, all of these things actually point to Jesus as the Messiah because he was from Bethlehem. He is from the uh, town of David. But also when it talks about uh, a prophet not coming from Galilee, actually prophets did come from Galilee. And so the they're showing that they're not dealing in truth and they're not dealing in the truth of the Old Testament or even in the truth of the situation currently. This is just what they want to be the case. And that's a different thing. We always have to guard ourselves against being in exactly that position of judging not by how things really are, but on what we just want to be the case. So Nicodemus makes a good point. You've got to judge uh, based on the actual evidence, not just on what you want to be the case. And, of course, they don't listen to him. Okay, but that brings us back then. Well, then what is the case? What is it that Jesus has been saying? And what does this mean? Uh, we're going to look at one particular part of this. And this is when it says, On the last and greatest day of the festival, Jesus stood and said in a loud voice, Let anyone who is thirsty come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as Scripture has said, rivers of living water will flow from within them. And by this he meant the Spirit. We mentioned that he's teaching in the temple courts. And then it talks about this last and greatest day of the festival. So we've got to talk about this, uh, about the festival. We've got to talk about what happens at the temple, and especially during this festival. The temple, of course, is the place where uh, God meets with people. That was the whole setup. It was where God would meet with his people. And there was a whole elaborate uh, system of sacrifice that made that possible for a holy God to meet with a sinful people. And in, so there was that setup, but that was only to be done in Jerusalem. And people lived all over the place. So there were three festivals during the year where everybody would come back to Jerusalem. It's like if you're a college student, you come home for Thanksgiving, you come home for Christmas, you come home for Easter, because you know there's going to be food. And <laughs> so there were three 
festivals where people would come to Jerusalem and they would bring their sacrifices there and they would celebrate these festivals there. And uh, this was one of those festivals of, uh, of tabernacles. And a tabernacle is basically just a tent or a temporary dwelling. It's like you're not living in your house. So for, for a week, the seven-day festival, they would make temporary shelters and they would live in these little huts they would construct. And that was a part of this festival. And you're like, well, that's weird. Why would you do that? It's like a national camping trip or something. But the idea was it was to remember how God had brought the people out of slavery in Egypt and he was taking them to the promised land where they would have their homes, their houses. And so this was to uh, remember what God had done in the past, but also pointing to how their whole life was like this. Their whole life was God calling them from somewhere and leading them to somewhere. And that in the midst of it, he was the one who was providing for them. And so they would live in these temporary shelters for a week as this annual reminder of we are his. He is the one over all of this. And they would bring their sacrifices. And it was seven days. And uh, there was a strange thing that started happening as a part of this uh, festival and celebration. It's not actually recorded in the Old Testament, but it is recorded in other places that this is the tradition that developed because of things that are written in the Old Testament. So we read about uh, Ezekiel's vision of when the temple uh, is established and the whole kingdom comes in fulfillment, that there would be this uh, little stream coming out from the temple. Remember that? Just read in Ezekiel 47. Stream coming out from the temple, and you're like, that's, that's weird. And then it just gets deeper and more and more water coming out of it. And then it turns the Dead Sea into a life-giving place. It's like, that's also weird. What? Maybe this is symbolic. Maybe this means something. And so what happened is the uh, people who were celebrating this festival every year started actually this tradition where the priests would go to a pool of water within uh, Jerusalem where uh, Hezekiah years before had dug a tunnel. I've walked through that tunnel. It is not built for tall people. And it is not, I can assure you. And (laughs) and it's very long. Uh, (laughs) And it brings the water into the city so that they would have water source there in the city in case they were attacked and you know, under siege and they needed fresh water. So it's bringing fresh water into the city. And they would take this water. This is part of the festival. They would uh, take a golden vessel. They would go and they would get water from this pool of Siloam. And they would go take it in this big procession. And everybody's all you know, in their fanciness taking this water to the temple grounds. And they would go to the temple and then right there by the altar they would pour out the water, symbolically representing what we just saw in Ezekiel 47 and as a way of kind of pointing towards the day when the streams would flow from the temple, et cetera, et cetera. They would do that every day of the festival, seven days. But do you also remember um, the story that happens in Joshua when uh, they go into the promised land and there's the battle of Jericho and God tells the people you're not going to just go in and fight this battle like you would expect, <laughs> but instead you're going to march around the city once every day, except the last day. Remember what they did on the last day? They march around the city on the seventh day, seven times. And then they blow the trumpets, they shout and the walls come down and all that. Same thing here. On every day of this festival, the 
priests would go and they'd get the water and they'd bring it back to the temple and they'd pour the water out on the ground. And they'd do that once every day until the seventh day. You know, the last and greatest day of the festival. When they would make this trip seven times and pour out this water. There in the temple. Jesus is teaching in the temple grounds. And he and the group of people that he's standing around are watching this procession all day, back and forth, getting water, pouring it out of the temple. And what happens to the water that's poured out of the temple? Does it begin to flow from the altar? Does it begin to flow out and give life to everything? No, it soaks into the ground and that's it. Because that water wasn't doing anything, but it was pointing toward something that would. And what Jesus is doing is in this moment, on the last and greatest day of the festival, as they're watching the water go back and forth, Jesus says, let me make sure I get this wording right. Jesus uh, says, on the last and greatest day of the festival, Jesus stood and said in a loud voice, let anyone who is thirsty come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as scripture has said, Rivers of living water will flow from within them. By this, he meant the Spirit. There is some crazy stuff that Jesus is pulling all together in this one little thing. And so as we were doing some kind of pop culture references earlier and saying, you know, just a few words, you kind of preload a lot of things. That's what's happening right here. Jesus is pulling together a whole bunch of stuff from the whole of the Old Testament. A whole bunch of stuff. About what it about Ezekiel's vision, the water that's going to be going forward, but also you have uh, Isaiah. Let's go there, Isaiah forty-four. But now listen, listen, Jacob, my servant Israel, whom I have chosen. This is what the Lord says: He who made you, who formed you in the womb, and who will help you, do not be afraid, Jacob, my servant, Jeshurun, whom I have chosen. For I will pour water on the thirsty land and the streams and streams on the dry ground. I will pour out my spirit on your offspring and my blessing on your descendants. They will spring up like grass in a meadow, like poplar trees by flowing streams. There's more to it. But do you hear this connection? This pouring out of the water and the pouring out of the spirit? This happens multiple places in, uh, in the Old Testament. Jesus is saying, this happens through me that I will be the one who's pouring out my uh, Holy Spirit on you. Here's the other thing. Remember how we said that the temple was the meeting place between God and his people? The way the New Testament talks about Jesus, that's him. The way that Jesus talks about himself when he is standing there at the temple and he says, you tear this down uh, and I will tear this temple down, I'll build it again in three days. And then we're told, but the temple he was talking about was his body, that he's the temple, that uh, he is the meeting place between God and people. Another, another part of that is as we go on in the rest of the New Testament, that's what we see as the church being described as the temple of God. As we are in Jesus, this is what happens. So that's what Jesus is talking about here is as he is the temple and the water flowing from him to his people, giving life everywhere it goes. Let's go all the way back to Genesis. 
Genesis chapter 2. You probably know or heard of the Garden of Eden, right? Heard of that? Anybody familiar with kind of the uh, relative altitude of the Garden of Eden compared to the rest of the world? Is it high or low? Sea level? This is chapter 2, verse 10. A river watering the garden flowed from Eden. From there, it was separated into four headwaters. The name, well, <laughs> we'll go through it. Uh, the name of the first is the Pishon. It winds through the entire land of Havilah where there is gold. The gold of that land is good aromatic resin, and onyx are also there. The name of the second river is the Gihon. It winds through the entire land of Cush. The la- name of the third river is the Tigris. It runs along the east side of Asher, and the fourth river is the Euphrates. So what is it saying? It's saying there's a river there in Eden that is watering Eden, but also giving water basically to the whole rest of the world. So now let me ask you again. Eden, higher, lower sea level? What do you think? <laughs> water flows downhill? Uh, so yes. Yeah, so it's, it's high in elevation. That's the idea there. Uh, in Jerusalem, the way they always talked about Jerusalem is you always go up to Jerusalem. The way the temple was designed, the idea of that, like we even look at the temple facing east, that was one of the things we saw in Ezekiel uh, 47. The temple itself is a kind of miniature, almost replica of the Garden of Eden in a sense. The idea being that um, it faces east because that's the way that people went out. So when you go back to the temple, it's almost like you're symbolically going back to Eden where God and his people were able to dwell together. That's the whole idea. God and his people dwelling together. So in, uh, when they talk about the temple in Jerusalem, if you were going to the temple, you were always going up to the temple and it didn't matter where you were coming from. You always go up to the temple and you always go down from the temple. Uh, but this... This idea, when Jesus is talking about uh, streams of living water that will flow through his, flow from his people, he's connecting Isaiah, he's connecting Psalm 1, he's connecting Genesis 2, all of it together, saying this is what it's all about. It's all about the life that God has come to give to the whole world through his people. But where does that come from? We go back to what we were looking at with the children's sermon. And you've got the lamp. If you have a lamp and you unplug it, it doesn't do much good anymore, does it? Not that it's a bad design. It's just not plugged in. And this is what Jesus is saying. He's making a claim about himself, but he's also making a claim for us as to what it means for us to truly have life. And what he's saying is, you've got to be plugged in to me. On the last and greatest day of the festival, Jesus stood and said in a loud voice, Let anyone who is thirsty come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as scripture has said, rivers of living water will flow from within them. And by this, he meant the spirit whom those who had believed in him were later to receive. Is this starting to make some sense? How Jesus is talking in a particular place 
and at a particular time in a way that just a few words can say a whole lot. I should learn from that. (laughs) So let me try to summarize. (laughs) The idea is, it's all about uh, having life in him. This is what we were created for. This is uh, what God created each of us for, and it's also what Jesus came to give. Uh, He talks about, I am the vine, you are the branches. If you take a branch and remove it from the vine, the weird thing is it still will look alive for a while. But having been removed from the source of life, it withers and dies. What Jesus is saying is, don't be like the cup of water that runs out. Come to me. Come to me. You will have desires. You will have thirsty souls. Everyone. I have a thirsty soul. He says, I'm the one who can satisfy truly and who will be able to give that life-giving spirit through which the whole world can find life. One of the things we've done as a part of uh, Discipleship Now this weekend is to actually have people at different churches all the way through. And part of the reason for that is that our belief is that it is, not, it is not super important that people come to the Presbyterian church or to the Baptist church or to the Methodist church. The point is that people come to Jesus. And this is what we are all about because it is in him, it is in him that we have life and find the true soul satisfaction that only he can give. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.